Well, good morning and welcome to the Men's Leadership Network. Welcome to everybody here in Franklin at our main campus and welcome to everybody meeting with us at satellite locations at Bricks and Cool Springs or Highway 55 in Nolensville. Also, welcome to anybody that may be joining us uh, online this morning or watching this as a replay of a podcast or a YouTube video. Good morning. Uh, before I get going, I want to let you know that we're going to have time for questions, uh, and you've got two ways to get those in, and we'll remind you throughout the morning. Uh, but you can get questions to us this morning. Uh, you can tweet them in, and the Twitter handle is at leadership underscore net, or you can email us questions at questions at mensleadershipnetwork.com. So I was driving over here this morning, I was getting ready, and I was reviewing kind of the introduction for our speaker this morning, and if I felt like I was back in uh, elementary school trying to pronounce names and words that I didn't quite know how to pronounce. And so all morning long, my exercise was opioid, opioid, opioid. <laughs> uh, before I announce today's speaker, I want to take a moment and share some alarming statistics with you. According to a report released earlier this month by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, more than 115 Americans die after overdosing on opioids every day. The Center of Disease Control and Prevention estimates, estimates that a total economic burden of prescription opioid misuse alone in the U.S. totals $78.5 billion a year. Nearly 30% of patients prescribed opioids for chronic pain misuse them. Of those prescribed opioids, 12% will develop an addiction to them or an opioid use disorder. Today's guest is no stranger to these overwhelming statistics, but he also knows there are good men and women like himself who are taking steps every day to put an end to this crisis. Special Agent Stan Jones celebrates his 20th year with the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration this year. While at the DEA, his responsibilities have included investigating domestic and international drug trafficking organizations involved in the distribution of cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, marijuana, LSD, anabolic steroids, and prescription narcotics. He has extensive training and has even served as part of an investigation and seizure of clandestine methamphetamine, LSD, and anabolic steroid laboratories. From 2004 to 2008, he served on the DEA's Administrator's Executive Protection Detail, where he conducted personal security throughout the world for the agency head. This included trips into the theater of war in Afghanistan in 2005 and 2007. Prior to joining the DEA, Stan served with the Metro, Nashville Metro, Gallatin, and Orlando, Florida Police Departments. Please join me this morning in welcoming Special Agent Stan Jones. Ready to go. Wow, Stan, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for joining us today and being here. Uh, tell us, I mean, uh, incredible introduction, but tell us a little bit more about your, just your family and your career up until this point. Uh, I've been in law enforcement now, Jeff, for 32 years. I started in 1986 as a 20-year-old with the Orlando, Florida Police Department where I grew up. And uh, it's hard to believe now, 32 years later, I've been with the DEA for 20 years wow. this year and have had a great experience. It's been a great journey. Um, I can't help but think of, of the men and women that I've had the opportunity to serve with in, in law enforcement, and specifically in federal law enforcement with the DEA, but it, it has been a journey. Wow. T tell me about a little bit about your faith journey in that process as well. Uh, I became a Christian when I was 10 years old, uh -huh. and I, early on in life, my father was a minister, and I felt the calling into full-time Christian service mm. and uh, went on to Trevecca Nazarene University here in Nashville uh -huh. as a freshman, as a pre-seminary major, 
And while there, I met some police officers with the Metro Police Department and uh, had the opportunity to go out and ride with them on the street. And in doing so, I kind of saw the world from a different perspective and uh, started feeling the call of going into law enforcement and hoping, hoping and trying to make a difference in the world in, in that capacity and, and did so and changed majors to criminal justice and became an, a police officer in Orlando, Florida at the age of 20, right before my 21st birthday. And uh, that was 32 years ago. Wow. Now, I remember known you for a long time, and, uh, and I remember when you were on the, uh, the force here in Metro, and, uh, you know, just the way you served there, and then, and then you went off to Quantico, I guess, and right. had training, and then started going all over the world, yes. and, uh, and then God brought you back here. Yeah, my first assignment was in Kansas City, and, and while there, I served on the uh, clandestine laboratory enforcement team, and that was in busy years back in the... Uh, the late 90s, early 2000s in the Midwest with methamphetamine, clandestine methamphetamine production in small meth labs. And uh, we also experienced the, the world's largest LSD lab ever mm. seized. That was out in Wamego, Kansas. Really? That was another big lab that, that we had worked. And then uh, from there, I went to, to Washington, D.C., where I served on the administrator, who at the time was uh, Karen Tandy. Okay. And uh, she was the administrator, was on her protection detail uh, from 2004 to 2008. Yeah. And then from there, I had the opportunity to come back to Nashville and serve in our Nashville district office, and have been here since. And you've been in Afghanistan, you've been in Israel, yes. you've been kind of all, all over, over the world, the world. Uh, South America, Southeast, uh, Southwest Asia, Europe, uh, the Caribbean, Canada, and uh, that was an adventure as well. Yeah, I imagine. So what do you like best about what you do, and then also what do you think is the most challenging aspect of what you do? Uh, as far as like liking best what I do is, is the, the job itself. Yeah, there are no two days are alike. Uh, it's a challenge, it's a need, it's an important mission of, of where we are as a nation, as yeah. a people, and as a, as a community. And uh, especially now in, in 32 years of law enforcement with the opioid epidemic that we're in, I've never seen anything uh, more destructive uh, to people and to families and to the community than where mm. we are with this epidemic. And to be a part of trying to curb that uh, and prevent that and intercept that is, uh, is challenging and it's very rewarding. Mm. So you do, or you have, I mean, I guess you continue, there's a lot of break-ins, there's a lot of having to go and bust, you know, drug places up. I mean, Yes, yes, so and, and, the, and the opioid epidemic where, you know, there's a, uh, several things that come into play, uh, heroin, Mm. is obviously on the rise in uh, not only nationally but in the community here in Middle Tennessee. And uh, that is brought into place largely by the uh, over and excessive prescribing of opiate narcotics. Mm -hmm. uh, we've, our, our nation, our country, in this region, in this area, we have a, a high level of prescribing narcotics. Yeah. And uh, I understand that's always been in a medical effort to alleviate pain, as we should. Uh, but the pendulum has swung too far, and, and now we're paying a price of the frequency and over-prescribing uh, that has turned into an opioid uh, abuse uh, epidemic. Yeah. And, and wh whatever level, whether it's heroin or the, uh, the synthetic opioid that is widely uh, being abused now, fentanyl, uh, along with prescription narcotics, it takes in all kinds of criminal organizations, whether they're street organizations or rogue practitioners who are deliberately and by profit and for profit over prescribing. 
and anywhere along the way, whether it be a pharmacy that's involved on doing criminal behavior, uh, as well as other organizations, street and, and, and upper level organizations that, that cash in on the profits that are available in this epidemic. What breaks your heart most of all about what the things you're out there that you're seeing? I mean, we know it's an epidemic. We know just even on the new budget uh, that they passed in Washington, there was just, I mean, they're putting millions, billions of dollars toward this because right. it's impacting so many. But what, what breaks your heart when you see what's happening out there? I think to see the, the toll on, on human life and the fact that so many, and it, it is affecting all walks of life. There are no, uh, no borders. Uh, there are no people groups that aren't affected, to see uh, the loss of life, to see where, where men and women and young men and women and now even teenagers have overdosed and uh, the toll that that takes on families personally and to, and to know the frequency that that is happening. Uh, and I'm a, I appreciate the statistics because I think that's important to know and for people to understand where we are with, with the numbers. But I personally, I'm not a big numbers guy. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I say that, I, I was uh, speaking recently, and I was looking at the number of the uh, drug overdose deaths in America from 2016, where it was 64,000 Americans died. And when you think of 64,000 Americans, that's 64,000 stories. And I've had the opportunity to listen to uh, specifically parents who have lost their mm. largely adult children. Uh, to drug overdoses. And when you hear those stories, if you take half an hour to listen to a mom or a dad tell that story, if we, for a half an hour, if you sat down and we sat in this sanctuary mm -hmm. and listened to every story of every American that died in 2016 from a drug overdose, if we listened for a half an hour, we would sit in this room to listen 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for three and a half years. Mm. That's how many Americans just in 2016, and the numbers for 2017 and, and, the, and the same time period, that I haven't seen the final numbers yet, but from s similar time periods going back to 2016, it looked like that the number for 2017 will be even higher than that. Wow. And, uh, you know, so we're having, we're in a continual state of mourning as a nation of the people that we're losing. And when you think of 64,000 people um, that's 128,000 parents yeah. that lost a son or a daughter. And that gets up into the millions of people who lost a family member. Yeah. And, and that's, that's nationwide, but you hear the stories. I mean, I know, I hear people that I know who have lost yeah. their, their family members. And then those who, who, who haven't been lost but are uh, in the throes of this addiction and the cost and the toll that that takes. Yeah, it, you know, I think we all have this feeling like, well, it won't ever impact me or it won't ever impact my family, but, but it will, and it does. And, you know, and, and we have people here at church. And so how, how do we see that impacting? Because a lot of times you think, well, it's maybe poor areas or it's maybe uh, certain areas of the country, but you're seeing it affecting all people. Yes, and, and to bring it home to, to Williamson County specifically, where this this you know church and congregation are largely are located and live, uh, I was talking to a woman who works at a. I don't want to get into specifics for the sake of privacy, but I was talking to a woman who works at a, let's say, mid-level or mid-expense restaurant chain restaurant in Nashville, 
And she had to come down to Williamson County to work at that, this county's restaurant with the same name temporarily because the, that restaurant here in Williamson County lost three employees in a week to a drug overdose. And that I can remember when you would hear of a, an entire city that might lose three young people in a week. And now we have one restaurant in Williamson County lost three people in a week. And that's just unheard of. But that kind of brings home the frequency and the number of people and how it affects this immediate community. Yeah. Yeah, I think we all have this kind of idea that that's out there. Somewhere else. It's somewhere else. And it's not. It's not. It's right here, and it's impacting everybody. And, uh, and I think for us to be aware of that is, is so important. So that's why I'm so glad you're here. How, how do we protect ourselves in this addiction? How, you know, because you're going to go to the hospital, you're going to, at some point, you know, you're going to be prescribed. Some, how do you protect yourself in all of this? Uh, I'll mention this. Our, our son had a sports injury, and uh, he had to have surgery. It was shoulder repair. He was, he's a base, was a baseball player, high school sports injury. And he had surgery. He came home, was doing the ice therapy, and then was taking what he was prescribed, and it was effective. And uh, I had been out of town actually speaking at a prescription drug overdose summit in another state. And I came home, and there was my teenage son on the couch. And I said, how's your shoulder? He said, it's good. I said, good, then we're off the narcotic. We're going to, you know, acetaminophen and ibuprofen, which we did. And I think, you know, and he had still had more of the prescribed medicine. And I understand the, the need to alleviate pain. That is, that's important. But it's also important as, as parents and as a dad to say, okay, it's, we can make this transition. Because uh, even though you may not have a, a family member or a loved one or a close friend that gets addicted, you very soon can be dependent on narcotics. It's the way that it's our way yeah. they, they work, and it's the way that our brain and central nervous system respond to them. It, it will happen. So I think it's something that in every scenario, especially something as... as what may be simple as a sports injury or minor surgery, that that is put into motion that we have to intercede yeah. and, and make a difference and be conscious of. And so many times we're afraid to or we let things go. We don't want to address it. We're, we're slow to discuss it. We can't. Yeah. yeah. I think that's such an important thing for us, right, just to know when we're prescribed this. It doesn't mean we continue on and like get off as soon as we can. But right. How do we also uh, protect our kids in this? And, and, and I think what you're saying is, you know, if they, if they are on that medication, but also how do we, how do we look in that around and recognize maybe some signs that there's some I hate, I hate this sounds so old fashioned now that I'm middle-aged, but I think of the phrase an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yeah. And to be on the front end of being open and honest and, and, and being informed if you feel like you're a, a dad and you don't think you're informed, get informed. Mm. Go to, you can go to the DEA.gov website and get an education. Uh, and there's some other links to um, other things about being an informed parent of what's out there. And I think it is so important not only to be informed, but be willing to communicate and talk openly with your sons and daughters, with your family members, with your coworkers, with the students or the athletes that you supervise, whether as a, as a teacher or as a coach, as a, uh, as, a, as a mentor in church, we've got to be having the conversation. Because as, as, 
it is so difficult on the prevention side of this to see success. It's so much easier to spend our efforts on prevention because if you look at the, you know, there's so many, I hate to say diminishing returns in life, but man, that is, if we can put more effort on prevention, we won't have to worry as much about curing. And, and I want to say this, I, I, I don't want to be the, the calloused federal agent or DEA agent or 32 years in law enforcement. I think we're finally seeing and, and addressing this as a disease, as a nation. There's, there's certainly science and, and medical evidence that supports that. And as much as I am in this job saying, hey, we need to put criminals in jail, I still believe that. Uh, as far as the use and the addiction, it's a disease. It is, and, and with that, it is, it's preventable, it's diagnosable, mm. and it's treatable. And uh, I think on the, 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 the other side of, of, of where we have addiction, we have to recognize that as much as we want to uh, dwell on prevention, we need to look at the treatment and the, the middle ground of going after the people who are profiting from the sale and the distribution of, of this, uh, you know, these drugs. That, uh, and that's the way, as, as an agency, the DEA is now looking at it. We're call, it's being called a 360 plan, 360 degrees. Mm. We're going after this because, and, I, and I'm proud to hear my bosses say, uh, our special agents in charge, the, the ones who are the, the managers of our agency are saying, hey, we're not going to arrest our way out of this situation. Mm. We just can't go arrest everyone that's involved or responsible and end it. It's bigger than that. We're, are we going after the, the, absolutely. Are we going to arrest those that are responsible, that are involved? Yes. But we're also going to address prevention. We're also going to address treatment whenever we can, such as why I'm, I'm here this morning. Yeah. Uh, we have to get the word out to the community. And uh, our special agent in charge, Mr. Chris Evans, who sits in Louisville over the new Louisville Field Division, which is Tennessee, Kentucky, and West Virginia. He came, he was in Nashville a few weeks ago and he told us, he said, hey, the biggest thing we're gonna get out here and do is we're going to offer hope mm. as an agency. And that's that's not just going to come from our investigative efforts, that's gonna be of everything that we can do to make a difference. Wow. Well, Stan, tell me, I mean, cause a lot of times, you know, whether we're, we're dads or, or, you know, in, in different areas of life, I mean, you hear about things like heroin or cocaine and you kind of think, wow, I'm gonna make sure, you know, people stay away from that. but. It, but it's these other things that maybe we don't understand them. Maybe, you know, it's like opioid, you know, like what, what is this? How are those infiltrating our communities? How are those getting into um, people's systems? How, how do we become aware of that and kind of start to recognize when we see those things? Going back before, uh, well, maybe going back to when this was becoming the epidemic that it is now, we were hearing stories of, of young people going to parties mm -hmm. where pills were being brought from medicine cabinets and young people would get together for an all-night event and their pills would be poured into a bowl and you would just experiment, take a couple of pills, see which one you like. Wow. And, uh, and now, as, as dangerous as that is, especially when it comes to mixing such things as, as a narcotic and a benzodiazepine, like a hydrocodone and a Xanax, as dangerous as that is, if it's a legitimately manufactured, it's even more dangerous now because what we're seeing is because of the, the use and the market for these pills, criminal organizations have stepped up to make profit from it. And the biggest profit in this now is by using the synthetic opioid fentanyl and now we're seeing an alarming increase where 
pill presses and pill dyes are being purchased off the black market and then pill binders are purchased and then fentanyl is laced into these pill binders and they're stamped out as a Xanax pill or as a hydrocodone pill and sold on the street or distributed on the street as a Xanax or hydrocodone when actually it's a counterfeit pill that contains fentanyl. Wow. And fentanyl is, is dependent on uh, what the opioid user's tolerance is. You're getting down to literally uh, just micrograms that can be fatal, where two micrograms, now micrograms are a thousandth of a milligram. And we're getting to very small amounts, like, like two granules of salt could be deadly. So in a pill where there's one granule of size of salt in the pill that would have the effect, and keep in mind these are being manufactured in someone's kitchen or their garage or their living room with a coffee grinder and a you know, very primitive and uneducated sources that a pill that's, that's an adulterated to look like a Xanax has got a lethal amount of fentanyl in it and then somebody takes what they think they're taking as a fentanyl and it's a lethal dose of fentanyl, or they think they're taking as, as Xanax is a lethal dose of fentanyl. Mm. How has, this is the side, but the whole legalizing marijuana, has that played into this in any way? I mean, has that changed the approach of, you know? I think in the big picture, the mindset of legalizing marijuana, uh, whether it's for recreation or for what is quoted as medicinal use, I think that is, plays into this. I think it makes a, it lowers the threshold uh, of a young person's mind of what is dangerous. Mm -hmm. That where that threshold used to be higher, I think it has now been lowered mm. by states and communities that feel that it should be made available recreationally or even medicinally, um, which obviously I hold professionally and personally a, yeah. a great issue with. Yeah. I make the comparison because we, we get asked that a lot with the DEA, and I always like to make the comparison when people talk about medicinal marijuana. I said, if you went to a physician and he said, now I want you to give you this medication, it's going to help you with your pain, this whatever the, your issue is, and it's in, they gave you an eyedropper. I said, now go home and get this eyedropper and put three drops of this medicine in the gas tank of your lawnmower. And then I want you to start your lawnmower in the garage and close the garage door. And I want you to breathe the smoke that comes out of the lawnmower because that will get you this medicine into your system. Well, it's also going to get you carbon monoxide into your system. And it's also going to get you other things that are dangerous. That's why the comparison I make with marijuana, okay, you're going to smoke this that puts carbon monoxide and about 80 carcinogenic materials and a fungus into your lungs to people that are typically have a suppressed immune system anyway, and they're going to breathe this carbon monoxide in, in order to get THC into their system. It's like, I just don't understand the concept. Yeah. But there are those who would argue against that, but yeah. that's their argument. <laughs> but that's good to know. I mean, I... You know, to, to hear that from your perspective really, I think, helps. And I think for us as men in our workplaces, in our communities, how can we stand up and make a difference? How can we be aware? You know, it seems like a lot of times moms or women, um, you know, they'll speak out. But it's like the, the, the men kind of stand on the sidelines. How do we engage? You I, know? I, I mean, we can't be a special agent. It'd be cool to be a special agent, but we can't. But how do we engage? Hey, but you could be a really cool coach. You can be a really cool teacher. I had really cool teachers when I was in high school and uh, really cool coaches. And uh, I think of 
and in thinking in terms of what we're going to talk about today, mm-hmm. and we discussed this beforehand, and, and Jeff kind of alluded to it, I think as, as men and as dads, sometimes we're hesitant to be so open and share because we guard our emotions and our feelings, and this gets to be a very emotional topic yeah. at, at any stage, prevention all the way to an overdose death. It is a very emotional topic. And uh, at now, and in, in the things that we do as, as an agent and the things that I do in the, in the, the prevention arena, in addition to investigations, I see moms that are open and speak publicly and tell the stories of their children, of their, of their sons and daughters. And I rarely see men that are as open. And I think we need men to be more open and uh, more vocal and share their story. As, as tragic as it is, I think there is a, the story needs to be told by both moms and dads, uh, by husbands and wives. And uh, sometimes, I think sometimes as a dad, I know I have, I, I look at the way my wife, Sandy, the way she uh, takes on things with our sons, the openness, and uh, it's, it's effective. Yeah. And I think we can learn from that because, you know, I know you can read about communication and husbands and wives and men and women. And I think women tend to communicate much more than we do in, in many topics. Yeah. And I think this is one that is no exception. And I think it is one where we are missing as, as dads. We need to be doing our part, not only at home as, as a dad, but in, in the workplace and especially in, in the role that we play in leadership with, with young men whether that's teaching, coaching, uh, again, as a mentor. And if you're not doing that, we need to be looking for the opportunities to do that because this is, this is affecting everyone. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was speaking to a group of school resource officers uh, last summer, and, and I, unfortunately for what I was seeing, I was thinking, you know, we were going to start seeing students overdosing in schools. Mm. And I, I predicted it would be happening this year. And I haven't heard of any in the state of Tennessee, I'm not saying that that hasn't happened, but I did hear of one just last week. In Little Rock, Arkansas, there was a student uh, in a high school in a restroom that overdosed on opioid, which we believe was heroin. And there was another student who had some naloxone, which is by trade is called Narcan or one of the manufacturers. And the fire department responded, and another student had naloxone, which the fire department uh, dispensed to this young person and save their life in a bathroom at a public high school. Yeah. And uh, that's tragic. And, and that's where we have, you know, uh, the op- opportunities to see uh, students, young people, our sons and daughters, and the environments in which they live, the temptations that are out there, and, and what is going on, and unfortunately what is so readily available that we've got to be stepping in and, and being a part of to educate and prevent. Yeah, I think as, as dads, we've got to step into this. We, you know, and, and a lot of times we'll back off on the discussions with our kids, but to talk to them and to, to make them aware, you know, when you, when you go to parties, because it is, it's affluent areas, it's affluent high schools, it's, 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 it's impacting everybody and, and just what you put in your body. I mean, it, and you've got to watch that because you right. don't know. And I think when we don't say anything, then we're kind of abdicating our responsibility there. Right. Yeah. And uh, man... Tell us, Stan, how can we pray for you guys? I mean, how do we pray for our law enforcement officers? And I mean, you've been with Metro. You've, you're a special agent now. You're all over the country. You're all over the world. Uh, how do we pray for you guys? I think, and that is always appreciated, uh, 
during my assignment in in Washington DC on the head of the DEH protection detail I later learned after we moved to Nashville that there was a, a mom and her daughter the daughters decided to pray for me daily uh, when she knew that I was going on one of the trips to Afghanistan and I later learned that even after we had moved uh, to Nashville that, that that young woman still prayed for me every night as part of her prayers and I was completely humbled by that mm. and uh, I, I look at the the difference you know that makes knowing that there's somewhere there's someone praying for you yeah and uh, you asked if we still go out and uh, do raids and we, and we do and there's there's times that you know we stop and, and take a moment uh, to pray and uh, I think it's important to, that we remember the men and women who serve uh, in law enforcement as first responders uh, EMS personnel. There's so many people that are on the front line with his home health care nurses. My goodness, I spoke for the uh, the state and, and talking to on with with uh, those who are in home health that go into homes where this is happening, and it's it's a different arena now with fentanyl and counterfeit pills. I mean, you've got we've got doctors and nurses and, and medical staff and EMS providers that have to protect themselves because fentanyl is dangerous. It's it's very toxic. It'd be very lethal in very small amounts, and it's changing the way we do business. So I would I would ask that everyone that is involved in this on the front lines, whether it's home health care, EMS, EMTs, and paramedics, and firefighters and police officers on the street, uh, this is a it's a, a terrible thing, and and everyone appreciates the prayers. Yeah. Well, I I've known you for a long time and just watched as. Um, God's had his hand of protection on you, you know? And yeah. I remember, I guess it was 20 years ago when you were doing a raid and, and a bullet came and um, went through your leg and um, and remember praying for you in the hospital and a bunch of people. And um, But now it seems like that has impacted you. You're, you stand up at, before you go on raids and you, you talk about, guys, let's pray. Right. And, and uh, How do people respond to that? Because I'm sure not everybody's a believer when you stand up and say, hey guys, we got, 200 agents here or whatever we're getting right. ready to go to this massive yeah it's it's something we 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 like to do and, and try to remember to do and uh i've been very humbled at times with with so many men and women that are getting ready to go and and uh and i feel you know do do the lord's work yeah. in trying to end this and putting themselves at risk putting themselves in harm's way uh for this community and uh, i i visibly see men and women that will stop <laughs> and pause and ask God's blessing, and then I think of the, you know, we go back to thinking about when, uh, when David prepared to do battle. Mm. He went and went down to the, went down to the creek and gathered up some stones, and uh, and God used him. Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of that story, of how God can can use us and protect us as we do this job. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you, Stan, you're you're a you're a leader. I mean, in your in your home and in your work in our community and all over the state, all over the world. But give us two takeaways from being spiritual leaders. What, what does that look like uh, for us as men today? Jeff, in, in preparation of this, I, uh, I, I see the story of a, of a pastor here in Middle Tennessee. His name is Robbie Gallaty. He's the pastor up at Long Hollow Baptist mm -hmm. Church where we attend. Mm -hmm. And I know Robbie's story uh, of his own battle with opioid addiction. And, and how God saved him from that, pulled him out of that world. Mm. And it's an incredible story. And I actually talked to him just two days ago. I said, Robbie, I'm going to be doing this today, and I want to know, if, can I share your... He said, Stan, you share my story anytime you want to. Mm. 
And I, I look at him, at Robbie, and every time I see him walk up on the podium, I think there goes an absolute example of, of God's miraculous work in changing a man's life. And I look at that, and it's of all the things we experience, uh, I see him weekly, and just by that, I'm always encouraged that there is hope, mm -hmm. that God makes a difference, that we can make a difference in this world if all we do is buy time to give people an opportunity to come to, uh, to know the Lord and to, uh, to find um, reconciliation and to find healing in this. Uh, I see that man. I think it, it can happen. Mm -hmm. Praise God. I mean, yeah. it, really. Yeah. And it is only God who can change a heart. Right. You know, and uh, we could try to legalize everything else, but it's, it's the Lord who can change the composition of a man's heart. Right. And, uh, and, and, and I appreciate that. But Stan, what do you want your legacy to be? Uh, I think of having, you know, three sons, and I want them to look at both uh, at me and my wife and say, you know what, they, they work to make a difference. That's awesome. Yeah. Man, I love that. Well, we got some questions for you. Okay. We have a bunch of questions this morning, Stan. Uh, and the first one, uh, I think is, I think is great. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe we'll have some fun with this one. Do you believe personally that a border wall would reduce the supply of illegal drugs coming into the country, and if so, by what percentage? Boy, I know there's a lot of people hanging on this response. <laughs> My answer: Yes. I do believe a border wall would reduce the supply of illegal drugs coming to the country because there are so many times that they do come across the border where there are no, there are no walls, there are no barriers, or the, the barriers that are there are not sufficient. And I'm not saying it would end it, but it would certainly help. And uh, I'm, I make the comparison, I, and, and people will ask that, and people will argue against that, and I say, before we talk any further, let's take out the contents of your front pockets. And let me see your key ring. Is there a key ring? Do you have a key to your home? Yes. Do you lock your doors? Yes. Because you want to have some control over what comes and goes inside and out of your house? Yes. And I think that is the government's responsibility. That is what we're trying to do is have some control for the sake of safety and security of what is coming and going in and out of this country. And that just as we secure our homes and lock our doors because we want to have control to protect our own children, as a government, we want to be able to control and protect our people with who is coming and going and what they are bringing. Mm -hmm. And if part of that is just by plain old physical security. Uh, cities have had walls, our homes have walls and fences and locks, and we're trying to do the same thing in this administration with this country, is making it more secure. Mm -hmm. So I think it would make a difference. As far as a percentage, I, I, I don't know. So do you see most, or most of the, a lot of the drugs that you see from the drug cartels in Mexico, or are they homemade here? All the above. We see, the above. We see, we see, we uh, see, still see a small amount of methamphetamine that is manufactured here. Although foreign cartels have taken over most of that production, uh, we see the, the prescription drug market here. Obviously, is manufactured domestically and mm -hmm. pres prescribed domestically, and is used and abused and part of the criminal organization here domestically. Uh, some of the fentanyl, the synthetic opioid that's coming into this country, some of it is coming from parcels from China, some of it is coming across the border from Mexico. Mm. So it's, it's all these things that we have to do collectively uh, and, and individually and yeah. address. But there's, there's not one silver bullet to this. 
uh, there's a variety of things that we need to be doing enforcement, which we're responding to, and by prevention. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate it. I love, when you were talking about that earlier, I mean, I think you're right. It's the prevention side of it. And it is also the raids in Mexico and right. Afghanistan, all these places that you end up going. But it's also right here helping do this sure. so that people are aware. Sure. Wow, man. Uh, another good one here. What are a few of the indicators uh, that there is a problem and what are the steps we can take if we know someone has a problem? I think that's a great question as a parent and as a friend uh, with our own children, changes in behavior, and with, if, with friends, with coworker. Uh, when you see changes in behavior, whether it's the way they socialize, the way they communicate, personal hygiene, sleep habits, interests, uh, when you see things like that that are changing, especially if it's more than one, there may be something going on that needs to be looked at, mm. talked about. And uh, as much as I try to you know, respect the privacy of, of our own family and our own sons, uh, there's sometimes you need to start stepping in and say, look, I want, it's time to start being a little more invasive to find out there's a problem. I want to, I want to know about it. And uh, I think specifically uh, physical changes, appearance, uh, hygiene, sleep patterns, uh, friends, if those things start to change, there's a good, good chance there's something going on that needs to be further explored. How do, you, how do people know, I guess just kind of part two of that question, like if, if you're on some kind of drug for a you know, long-term treatment, how do you recognize in your own life, hey, wait a minute, this has gone to a different level. Like I've become dependent on it. Is there a, you know what I'm I saying? I think personally when people start changing patterns of uh, lifestyle, patterns of behavior, when they see their own personal characteristics change mm -hmm. or their spouse or their closest friend or yeah. something, uh, it's, it's hard to deny. Yeah. You may be able to give the appearance socially but personally, and those who are close to you, when there's a problem, that people are going to say, "Hey, there's there's something going on." Yeah. Wow. Okay. We got, yeah, we got we got another one here. Um, with all that you see, how do you become? How do you keep from becoming jaded about mm -hmm. people? And how have you been able to maintain your commitment to Christ, being so close to all this devastation? Wow. The first part to keep from becoming jaded, I try to have a positive outlook. I try to think of my own weakness, and I see that, that other people's weaknesses are different than mine, mm -hmm. and that in this arena, it's, it's their, their weakness to the addiction, uh, or their weakness to greed that leads them to participate as part of a criminal organization that's profiting from, from taking advantage of people's addiction. And uh, I, I, I try to remember that we are all God's creatures mm -hmm. uh, in the midst of, of people who are making bad decisions, exercising bad judgment, being a criminal, they're, they're still God's creatures. And, uh, you know, I have sympathy on, on people who are, have used drugs. I have sympathy on people who've, who've fallen into a pattern, a lifestyle. I've got sympathy. I've got sympathy on people that we send to prison. Mm -hmm. But I still think they owe a debt to society, and they've still broken the law, and they still need to go. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that they're still human. Yeah. And I try to keep that in perspective, and uh, that is largely by my faith. Yeah, yeah. Well, Stan, you're making a difference, and I just want to say thank you uh, on, you know, behalf of me, my family, and uh, our church, our congregation, um, also our community. 
Um, thank you for your service. Thank you for the difference that you're making here and around the world um, because you are um, saving lives. And well, um, Thank you for having me. Thank yeah. you for including us. And I say that not just myself, but the DEA and what, what y'all are trying to do in the effort of, of making a difference here. Well, and, and I appreciate your heart for life change, you know, and, and, I, and I know Robbie and just seeing him and it, 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 you are changing lives, you know, and I also appreciate even for the families that have had loss and to come alongside and, and to offer hope. And, uh, and so just know that we're praying for you. Thank um, you. We believe the best. And we, I'm thankful that you're a man after God's heart and you're representing um, Christ in the middle of, a, of an epidemic. And uh, I, like you, believe it's only Christ who can change a heart. And right. so um, just want you to know that we're with you and we're for you. So thank you. Thank let me you, pray Jeff. for you right now. Is that all right? Yes, sir. Thank um, you. Father God, I just thank you for Stan. I thank you, Father, just um, for his life, for his heartbeat for you. God, I thank you for your hand of protection on him. And um, God, I've known him a long time. And to, to see the man that he is, to see the dad that he is, um, the husband. And I pray, God, just a blessing over him. I pray for all of our law enforcement officers all throughout, our, all of our first responders, God, throughout our community, throughout our country. Father, I pray for protection. Um, and God, I pray that you would fill stand, God, with your Holy Spirit, that you would just have him um, continue to be a, an influence for you. I pray for all the dads who are watching this, and God, that you would give us just a sensitivity to your spirit in our families, in our communities. I pray for every man, God, that we would step into this and, and, and not just sit on the sidelines and be quiet and while moms and others talk, but God, that we would be men who step in and, and who speak truth and who speak hope and who pray. And, and so, Father, use us today in our generation. And God, different generations have had challenges that they've had to face. And God, this is our, this is our time. And as a generation, God, this is an epidemic and a crisis that we've got to step into and face. And so let us be godly. Let us be men after your heart and use us, God, for your glory. Thank you for Special Agent Stan Jones, and I just pray a blessing on him today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Stan. Um, guys, as a reminder, you're going to get an email if you're on the, on the email distribution list with a link to today's interview. Uh, it's simple to, to, to forward that on. Stan gave us great examples of people that, that maybe, uh, maybe in your life that you're observing a change, or maybe, maybe you have another man that has gone through this, or maybe this is something that this is an entry point for a conversation. Uh, maybe it's with your adult kids, maybe it's with your sons um, who are recovering from a surgery or something. But uh, know that we'll send out the email, the MLN uh, rewind email, and again, a link to today's interview as well as a link to about 50 other interviews with men in our community talking about men's topics. So that's all on the website. It's all accessed through the email. Uh, the website, again, is mensleadershipnetwork.com. Uh, as we wrap today, I want to make sure that we get a little plug in for next week's guest. We're going to transition from drug prevention to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> so uh, next week, we're going to welcome Jeff Hooper. Jeff is the Director of Operations for Chick-fil-A in Brentwood. I'm sure uh, all of our spouses and ourselves have been in, in, in his, uh, his, his lines through the drive-through. Uh, but as you can imagine, every time you go into Chick-fil-A, I'm always impressed by the young men and women that are there to, uh, to, serve, to serve their food. So we're going to have a conversation about um, uh, ex 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 uh, passing on leadership skills to the next generation. So Jeff is going to be here to talk to us about that. That'll be our final series 
uh, of Men's Leadership Network for, for this time period. So hope you can make it. 6.30 for breakfast. We'll get going at 7 o'clock. Thank you.